Hi, I'm Jessie Ware. I'm Lenny. And we're from the Table Manners podcast, and this week we're sponsored by Uniqlo. I'd really like to bring to your attention Uniqlo Airism. So it's a base layer that releases heat and moisture to keep you feeling cool. So Airism fabric includes antimicrobial and deodorizing features to help you stay feeling fresh. And Airism so lightweight and it's really, really super smooth, which stays invisible beneath the clothes. So you can wear this layer and still be really cool. And it's soft. It's really it soft. soft. Gorgeous. So discover Airism now in Uniqlo stores and online at uniqlo.com. Hello everyone and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen and with me is... Devendra Hardwire. Joining us also today, he was the former managing editor at SlashFilm.com. Now he freelances at a bunch of really awesome sites that are almost as awesome as SlashFilm.com and occasionally more awesome. Russ Fisher, welcome back to the show. How are you doing, Russ? I'm great, Dave. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me back. Where can people find your work these days, Russ? If they're looking for the Russ oh, Fisher infusion... <laughs> the infusion. Do. Yes. Um, I have I have kind of an all-in uh, portfolio site that's at Contently, so it's just russfisher.contently.com. I'm doing a lot of the playlist. Uh, I'm doing occasional stuff for like Mashable and Rolling Stone and the LA Times here and there. Never heard uh, of them. Never heard of them. Small, small little tiny <laughs> outlets. Uh, I just did a, a list of the greatest sci- science fiction films ever for Thrillist for uh, Mr. Matt Patches over there. Oh, yes. Yeah. And uh, – that's a good piece to argue about because I'm sure you think some of my choices are moronic. Um, That's the right, best yeah, thing about doing like, those kinds of pieces, right, is that uh, everyone will just yell at you, but whatever, <laughs> traffic. It's great, yeah. I mean, yeah. The, I don't know. The, I, I'm happy to be yelled at or talked <laughs> to. Uh, you know, death threats kind of suck, but anything short of that I'm pretty okay with. Mm-hmm. Well, it's great to have you back, Russ, and uh, today we're going to do something a little bit different. We already did our Warcraft review a few days ago, and so uh, we're not going to do a full-length episode today. Instead, we're going to do a review and then an After Dark where we'll talk about a few random topics. Um, So let's dive right into our review today of The Conjuring 2. Do you know when the voice is going to speak? Sometimes. Does it ever say things just to you that you can only hear? Yes. Does it feel like it's coming from inside of you? More like it's coming from behind me. Like I'm being used. What does it say? It said it wants to hurt you. When did it say that? Right now. That was from the trailer for The Conjuring 2, uh, the latest film by director James Wan. uh, And the plot summary from IMDb reads as follows. Lorraine and Ed Warren travel to North London to help a single mother raising four children alone in a house plagued by malicious spirits. Now, uh, I was very keen to catch this film because James Wan, obviously a guy who has had a meteoric rise in Hollywood ever since he released Saw back in 2004, 
Uh, and uh, he went from a incredibly low budget horror film, Saw, all the way to Furious Seven mm-hmm. in 2015. Uh, the box office for Furious Seven was astronomical. Uh, I think the movie, you know, was one of the top performers of that year. Made three hundred fifty-three million dollars domestic, one point five billion worldwide, uh, and they probably backed up a Brink's truck to his house to get him to direct Furious Eight, right. and he turned it down because he wanted to make Conjuring Two. Now there are many reasons for that. One is that the Furious movies are probably incredibly stressful. Uh, but uh, he clearly has a passion for these Conjuring films. Conjuring 1 was a great film that did really well at the box office as well. Uh, and so, anyway, I was, this felt to me like a passion project, uh, and a passion projects can either be really great or really terrible. Uh, so, Russ Fisher, let me ask you this question. You know, were you a fan of the first Conjuring, and did you feel like the sequel lived up to the first film? You know, I was I wasn't wild about the first film. I like it. I don't think it's a great movie. I, you know, Juan is one of those guys who is a little bit weird for me because I respect the way that he works and I respect the choices that he makes because I think he obviously goes a little well, not obviously, but I think he goes a little bit beyond the the one for them, one for me sort of uh, you know ratio that you hear about as a cliche all the time. Um, but The Conjuring, in the first hour of The Conjuring, I, I thought like, wow, this is – I thought it was a movie that had the potential to kind of live up to or potentially even surpass Poltergeist. Uh, and typically I wouldn't make that comparison lightly but there's a lot of stuff in The Conjuring that I think invites that comparison very directly. And in the end, it felt a little uh, – it, it just felt wobbly to me. You know, I I feel like The Conjuring doesn't do a great job of following up on things. It doesn't do a good job of paying off stuff that it sets up. Um, and while a bunch of the scary stuff is really really well constructed, I didn't buy into the, a lot of the character work. Um, as far as The Conjuring 2, I think it's an improvement. I think it's a better film in part because I think the scary stuff works a lot better. I think it's supremely well-crafted. However, I don't think that the character work is really all that much improved. And I kind of got through the first hour of The Conjuring 2 and then concluded, oh, there's really not going to be a whole lot of story here that's that's going to tie together this character stuff in the same way or with the same strength of the, the scares in the movie. Mm. Uh, so kind of a mixed bag, it sounds like. Some decent scares, but uh, the character work didn't really do it for you. Uh, Devinder Hardware, what did you think of Conjuring 1 and 2? I think we reviewed Conjuring 1 on this we podcast. Did, yes. and, uh, yeah. well, I think we all enjoyed it. So, I really liked it. Yeah. yeah. So did you feel the second one uh, lived up to the first or was it an improvement? I, so yeah, I really like the first Conjuring, but mainly because I love the uh, the mythology around Ed and Lorraine Warren uh, as as like, and I love that he's basically set up a movie series about them as like you know ghost hunters and kind of what they do, and this is a real life couple kind of following things they've actually done. Uh, who knows? You know, can't say if any of this stuff is real, but to them it's very very real. Um, so I, I just kind of love following them and I've read about them for a while. So I like the first movie. This one I think is definitely an improvement. Um, although I think the bigger problem for me is that, you know, I, a lot of the scares work. I love, um, Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga in this, um, as these characters, uh, it feels a little long. Um, I feel like a movie like this should probably be a little more impactful. And the thing is, like, James Wan does this stuff so well, right? He has, like, gotten the uh, the whole haunted house thing. 
and the slow, the slow creeping scares, he's gotten them down so well that I, I think after a certain point, they almost feel a little manufactured, right? Because you know, oh, whoa, the music has stopped. Uh, everyone's stopped speaking. You know something is going to happen. You can start to recognize of, the formula right. behind the right. jump scares, basically. It's just right? the countdown until then. And uh, this movie and The Conjuring and Insidious as well, like those movies. Insidious too, by the way. Like, I, Have you seen that movie, Dave? No, I have not yet. I really like the first Insidious. Insidious 2 is genuinely a bad movie. Like, just very, very... It, it it's it doesn't work on many levels um so that that actually made me wor- a little worried about the conjuring is that uh i think he was pressured for time for insidious 2 and just didn't end up so good this movie it feels like he can get the scares right the characters i love and the acting is great all around um but it doesn't like inspire the sort of like unending dread a, a truly like tremendous horror film does like it's it's not like the shining honestly not even like uh gore verbinski's ring remake or the original ring like those are movies that i don't know terrify me somewhere deeper down than just the jump scares this one didn't quite do that although there are some uh crazy villains or i don't know evil things in this movie that are definitely creepy to think about just the way they're designed and the way they look. Uh, but I wish, you know, he could go a little further rather than, like, manufacturing a very uh, a very neat haunted house. By the end of this movie, like, things wrap up very neatly. And I don't think that quite... That didn't even reflect uh, what happened in um, in real life with this family. Although there's, there's a nice little title card at the end that is, I don't know, kind of uh, messes up the happy ending. Um, but, yeah, it's... Uh, I, I think it's a little too neat... So I really like it. I just hope he figures out a way to like move beyond the formula. He's kind of, you know, figured out this at this point. I don't know. When I went to see The Conjuring 2, beyond, you know, wanting to see what drew James Wan to this story, I all I wanted to really see was some innovative scares. Right. Show right. me some stuff that I haven't seen before. Scare me in a way that's not just, you know, creepy silence in the dark and then all of a sudden something comes right. out of nowhere and makes a big noise. Right. You know, and I think the movie really does succeed at that at least for the first 60 to 90 minutes. The movie's two, and a, uh, two hours and 15 minutes long. For the first 60 to 90 minutes, there's a bunch of pretty effective scares to the point where mm-hmm. my, I could feel my heart beating in my chest at a far more accelerated rate than it usually is. And so for the, to that extent, I think the movie is quite a success. Uh, but I kind of agree with Russ that the rest of the film... So I, I disagree with Devendra, agree with Russ that the scares are good and uh, that the character work is kind of weak in this film. Uh, very predictable. Uh, there were people... Actually, this is something that happened in my theater. There were people in my, in my theater screening that were calling out lines that yes, the characters yes. would That's say happened. before yeah. they said them. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I can see that. That is incredibly annoying and irritating, and you should never do that and shame on you if you ever do that. But, but the movie at, does inspire it. But yeah. at the same time, yeah. uh, they I don't think they got any of those lines wrong. You know, like they got <laughs> most of the lines that they tried predict uh, correct. So uh, the movie is very predictable. It kind of adheres to a very specific template that we've seen before in terms of like mm-hmm. what's going to happen with these characters and how they. They vanquish the evil that's before them, or maybe they don't. To me, a more interesting question is the fact that since uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren have been widely discredited as frauds, is this movie still something that can be enjoyed? I I believe so. I mean, I think that they, like, if you... I mean, this case, certainly, the the Enfield haunting is thoroughly debunked as a... 
a thing that was, I mean, it's not even remotely close to true. So mm-hmm. it's, it is very odd because the movie wants you to uh, be on Ed and Lorraine Warren's side. You know, right. it, yeah. it, it's positioned in such a way as though they want you to believe in the supernatural. They want you to believe in Ed and Lorraine Warren and not believing in them would lead to huge problems for the family that they're trying to help. Mm-hmm. It's very so, clear cut, right? Like the people who don't believe them are definitely wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, that that kind of did bug me too because I think that idea, the I don't know, like how how we're approaching it in real life, right? Like we don't know if any of this is true, and I think that uncertainty makes it a lot more scary in a way. Like we don't know how the world works. Whereas in this movie, yes, it's very clear uh, <laughs> these things all exist. And you should be afraid of it, and you're a bad guy if you don't agree with their like faith-based mission here. The thing that really does save the movie for me, though, is that mm-hmm. uh, I think the relationship between them is quite touching. You know, it's so good. It, yeah, it, it, it you do feel like there's love between these characters, uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren, and that they're looking out for each other. And even when their occupation imperils them, uh, they they have to balance between their love for each other and also uh, the demands of their job and their demands to help people. Uh, Russ Fisher, did you buy that relationship at all, or was that just something that uh, me and Devendra enjoyed? I think it's just something that you and Devendra enjoyed. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, that's, that's being facetious a little bit. I think Vera Farmiga is terrific in these mm-hmm. movies, especially in the couple of sequences where she's doing her, you know, where she's kind of going into her visions or whatever, as you see, yeah. uh, for instance, at the beginning of the movie, which deals with the Amityville horror by the way, how baller is that? That is how baller James Wan is. Like he just <laughs> he redoes the Amityville horror, or at least the key moments in it, in like, in like five fifteen minutes. minutes. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. And and but that's another thing where the Amityville horror is a and not to get too far off the topic of of Dave's most recent question, but the Amityville horror is another case that's pretty thoroughly debunked. Yeah, and and pretty so pretty rough the movie, details around that that situation. <laughs> if you read you've about got. It. Two very well debunked cases as the basis for a movie that wants to convince you it's based in fact. And, you know, like you, Devendra, I've read a lot about this mm-hmm. stuff. And, and to me, that just kind of it, it maybe stacked the deck against this movie in terms of, of suspension of disbelief or believability. With respect to the Warrens, uh, I think Vera Farmiga is terrific. I think Patrick Wilson is. Um, I don't have as much trouble with Patrick Wilson as I do with, say, Dominic Cooper, but it takes me a little bit of work with Patrick Wilson to really, <laughs> like, to really. Just like get a general, it. like you can't get into him. And I kind of, you know, it's yeah. like the guy clearly works hard, and, and yeah. I almost feel bad saying that, but it just like it, he doesn't often work for me. It was a problem oh, with Stoker. Man. It's it's. Uh, Did you see uh, Fargo, Fargo season two? Yeah. I haven't watched most of Fargo season two, so that's um, okay. what I've seen of it. I liked, but I'm way, way behind on Fargo. I think, for... I think that show will make you a believer in, in the Patrick Wilson. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I would I, love I, that. I mean, like he's he's a he's a neat personality. He's clearly into what he does, and you know, I don't say this as any sort of like mm-hmm. uh, you know gleeful slam on him or anything. It just he doesn't always work for yeah, me. Yeah, I, I think he has a pretty specific type. He's kind of this nice guy, earnest esque character. Uh, for m- many of his roles, I mean, I actually recently rewatched Hard Candy, uh, and I think he's great in that as kind of a creepy pedophile. Uh, but in uh, his other roles, he's he's really wholesome, mm-hmm. and uh, so I, I understand why it might not be your thing. Especially what I know about Russ Fisher, I can understand <laughs> why the Patrick Wilson type 
would not be uh, within Russ Fisher's wheelhouse somewhere. But uh, but yeah, totally understand. It might not work for you. It might work for other people. I, I um, think in this movie, like he's clearly trying really hard. Like he he's giving it you know quite a quite a bit here. But yeah, he doesn't have the depth of the character as much as Vera Farmiga does. Like she, yeah. like she has a lot more going on basically. Yeah, and I, I also need to clarify. I said Stoker earlier, and I should have said Stretch, but that's that's yes. Uh, yeah, yes. sorry. Uh, yeah, so you're getting your, you're getting your Watchmen reasons. confused, Russ Fisher. <laughs> yeah, anyway. I am getting my Watchmen confused. Um, I well, let, yeah, and the less said about that, the better. Um, yeah. You know, I the thing is, like, I just there, there's a lot of trust placed in those two actors in this movie, and I I almost feel like they're places where The Conjuring Two maybe relies too heavily on the fact that I'm just going to like mm-hmm. this pair of actors to sell this relationship because they're without wanting to go too deep into spoiler territory just yet. There are places where Vera Farmiga's character uh, sort of says like, Hey, you just got to go with me on this. And right, right. a lot of those conversations don't really, I don't know. They're not founded in enough and, and where the movie goes after those conversations isn't very well founded for me. Um, and, some of the stuff that she is trying to deal with. Um, again, I'm not in like the scares are good, but then when you try to put it in the framework of a bigger story, I'm not really sold on it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like when someone says, Hey, we're facing off against the depths of hell here. You must trust me when I say that we're going to make it out of it alive. You need to really believe that person when they say that in order for that moment to work and in order for many parts of the movie to work. Uh, and this movie might not have given you enough to to make that leap, as it were, right? That's yeah, that's that's correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I can understand that for sure. And especially when you then overlay this entire thing on top of it of uh, maybe part of what these people did was fraudulent, uh, mm-hmm. it becomes even less easy to believe <laughs> what's going on here. So do uh, we do we know any of that for sure? Like what I what I know is that they. At least Ed and Lorraine like have always believed what they've done, but I'm not sure if like that stuff, like the stuff around it, the actual investigations, were actually you know things that you could point to and say those were supernatural. Yeah, uh, I was wondering how you'd react to this, Devinder, because I, mm-hmm. I think you and I have had conversations about the supernatural before. I mean, regardless of whether or not supernatural beings actually exist in the we, real world, we cannot world, figure that out. On we this cannot podcast. figure that world on this yeah. pod on, on this podcast, uh, but. Let's just say if you look into the Enfield haunting, if you look into Amityville uh, horror, uh, their behavior around these events has been sketchy at best. And, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, maybe we can come back later after we've done some reading about it and and talk about it more. But anyway, I'm not saying, you know, nothing they've done has validity. I'm just saying that there's a lot of doubt around whether or not these people. uh, Let's just say I'm not so sure that I would take the movie at face value in terms of uh, what the 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 movie characters like they're there. If you look in the credits of this movie, right, the characters are credited to actual writers because these aren't these aren't the exact same people. Right. right? It's it's just taking bits of their story and we're just separating that. But it's just one of those things like I grew up reading. Like I think Lorraine Warren came to our college a couple of times to like talk about things spooky things during around halloween times um it was always interesting to hear her talk about her experiences like she always struck me as somebody who really believed what she was doing but yeah i don't i don't know the specifics of any any discreditation well in this movie also like in the end credits of this film and this is not a spoiler spoiler thing but in the end credits there's there are one-to-one correlations made between the real person and the and the actor in that we're shown photographs that are very directly uh directly emulated 
it, by visual compositions mm -hmm. in the film as if to say like, hey, this is how close to reality we are. The, you know, this is the this pose that you saw an actor do in the movie is is a direct re replication yeah. of a photograph that was that was published of these actual people. Right. They they even uh, play back a certain sort of real thing, right. or at least a recording that they claimed was real. Yeah. Right, right, and I th and and one real quick point, you know, with respect to the the fidelity or the realism in these movies, a thing that was a, an issue for me, and particularly in the first Conjuring, but also in this one, is as these films attempt to hew very close to, uh, you know, published accounts, shall we say, of the the original hauntings. Um, they almost feel very unwieldy in that, like in the mm -hmm. first movie, I don't know if we needed to have like whatever it was, five kids in the family or something like that, <laughs> where after a certain point in the movie, most of them just kind of fall to the wayside and feel like they're just not doing anything. Similarly, in this film, I felt like a bunch of the characters were like clutter more than they were presences who really added to the to the film mm -hmm. or to its effect and i feel that in that respect like oh you've obviously taken a bunch of license in you know claiming that things that have been disproven are in fact supernatural happenings so maybe you could also take a little bit of license in in you know tweaking maybe the the numbers of people involved and just kind right, of stream right. streamline things a little bit there are there are a lot of side characters definitely like franca patente is in this movie for some reason uh, which surprised me. That did not she, look like her at all. She kind of yeah. represents the skeptic side in this film. The skeptics, yeah. My Although she, she's painted very much as like the you know the sour pus uh, kind of villain, I guess. My favorite yeah. side character in the film, uh, and I don't know if we need to do spoilers for this film, <laughs> but I'm going to give away a very minor sure, spoiler, sure. which is that um, there is a, a rather corpulent neighbor <laughs> in the film. Right, he's kind of chubby. Uh -huh. And uh, he's probably the most overweight person in the film. And when I saw him, I thought, hmm, that's what an interesting uh, actor that they must have hired for that because uh, everyone else in the movie is pretty thin. So, like, why? I, I'm curious why you would hire. This is what you're noticing? Hold on, hold on. I'm getting to this. So, <laughs> so they hired this overweight actor. And I'm thinking, hmm, I wonder, like, why they made that character overweight. Like, what, what, what was the purpose of that? Was there a purpose for that? And in fact, gentlemen, there was. Because towards the end of the film, uh, Patrick Wilson's character is in trouble in the house, and uh, this uh, overweight dude is helping Lorraine Warren break into the basement. Mm -hmm. And he has an axe. He's breaking into the basement, and she's just like, I got to go. And she just rushes in there, and the dude can't follow her because he's too <laughs> fat. And I was just thinking, oh, my gosh, they hired this person just so he could get to this point in the movie and not be able to follow Lorraine into I, the I house. I think there are other ways they could have portrayed that, too. Like, <laughs> you know, you on, know David, it's yeah. funny because I started off this review by saying that these movies are, are bad at following through and paying off <laughs> stuff that they set up. And yet you're refuting me immediately right. with that. It's yep, like, that's a go. great example. Checkmate, Russ Fisher. Checkmate. I'm just going to go now. Bye. It's been <laughs> good. Thanks, guys. Agreed completely with you, though, that I think when you have a movie like The Conjuring 1 with five kids or however many characters, mm -hmm. that at some point the number becomes the function and not the individual characters, right? It's just the idea that they have this many children is what is so upsetting about that particular haunting. Right. Uh, and you don't really – you can't identify any of the kids by name or you barely tell them apart by face. The but, older one, the little one, sure. Yeah, but it's really just like the the idea of this many kids. Uh, yeah. And that can be a good or bad thing, but I, I tend to agree with Russ that, hey, if you're going to take liberties, 
you might as well just condense it down so we can actually care about the people who are on the screen. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the complaints that people had about this movie is that – uh, the the movie throws too many different kinds of scares at you. You know, the first one felt like it was far more disciplined, you know, far more simple in the kinds of scares it was going for. Uh, and this one, there's like CG things that come out of whirly gigs and whirly gigs. Um, yes, yes. The, those uh, what are you zoetrope machines, like whatever uh-huh. those, those things are. And there's why would you buy that for your child, <laughs> by the way? That is just like a Why terrifying would you buy it? You're a terrible yeah. father. Yeah, oh, you know, and the, you know, there's like demons and other things. Uh-huh. All, basically, it felt more of like a kitchen right. sink approach to scares than than the first one did. There's um, a lot more going on. For me, yeah. it didn't it didn't really bother me. I guess because some of the scares were so well executed mm-hmm. uh, and it, it got great reaction from the audience and I love yeah. being in a movie that does it. So I didn't mind it. How about you guys, Devendra? Did you find I, it to yeah, be I did, I, That was not a problem for me. I, yeah. I wanted the movie to go further and kind of push its notions of like how, how it's going to scare us. Because to me, a lot of it felt very conventional. I didn't mind the CG. I didn't mind like the special effects or like the variety or anything. Um, and there are several sequences too where he's clearly like messing with you. Like you kind of know what to expect. And then he sort of messes with your expectations. And then there are other scenes where it's like exactly what you want, like exactly what you expect and you can predict it all the way. So I actually wanted more of the former. Um, we could, I don't know if we're going to do spoilers for this, but there are definitely some sequences I thought are really well put together. Like, I really admire the craft of this movie and I admire the design work. Um, the spirits that are featured in the film, um, including like one like evil demon nun, it's just like horrifying to think about. It's just like a very great, scary design. Um, one of the, that was also, I think, one of the funniest uh, bits of the movie, right? The, the, there's a scene where, like, Lorraine comes down and Ed's just painting, painting along. And uh, she's like, what, what'd you have to do, dude? And uh, he's like, oh, no, I'm just painting this dream. And you look at the, the painting. It's a horrific image of this <laughs> demon. And then, <laughs> then he hangs it up on the wall. Yeah. <laughs> to, to, uh, to really celebrate that artwork, yeah. It's and almost they, like a- it's kind of a close encounters sort of moment, yeah, right? Yeah, it's almost yeah. like Richard Dreyfuss making a making a giant devil's tower exactly, in the living room. Exactly. It's like, come on, babe, this is awesome. Why don't it's you? Totally like great, this? totally great. And the re- I guess the daughter didn't mind it either. Like it's yeah. it's totally fine for them to keep around. It's it great. kind of reminds me of Annabelle the doll from the first right. film. You know that why would anyone keep this thing around? It's not <laughs> <laughs> well. That, that's explained, right? Because they have like their their collection of haunted things. No, 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 their, no. But what yeah, I'm yeah. saying is, why would anyone even have it in the first place? Because oh, it's yeah. so inherently yeah. scary. You know that it's it's just terrifying <laughs> to get yes, yes. you know get those no, things away you. from you. So. Um, <laughs> Now, I, I would like to say that um, – now, I, see, Dave, I would go against you a little bit just in the sense that, OK, I would agree that, uh, that yeah, the, maybe the scares don't go as far as they could. Um, but with respect to them being – there being a bunch of different kinds, there are a number of different things in this movie. But I think that they're all united by a pretty rigorous aesthetic approach and that this movie, especially when you get to the scary stuff, is often shot pretty wide. You've got like wide lenses that are really great about establishing the space that you're in um, and that really let you see a lot like almost in uh, – you know, along the lines of It Follows in a way where you really get to see an entire room. 
and you know something is going to come up, but this movie is not building like jump scares out of editing, and it's not um, it's not frequently hiding things from you unless they're hiding in really deep shadow. And it's to me that unified things in a way. And 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 like Devendra said, I really admire the craft of this movie. Certainly, at least as far as the scares go, because I think they're really well shot. I think they're well conceived and. They're doing really traditional things, some stuff that, yeah, is like pretty familiar, but I think it's all done really well and I like that aspect of the movie a lot um, with the exception of the CG thing that we're kind of dancing <laughs> around, which to me just seemed like – that seemed like it was fairly out of place. Yeah, uh, which will probably end up being another spinoff movie character. <laughs> it seems – yeah, I mean that seems like from the moment that thing is on screen, I was like, oh, this is your next spinoff movie and mm-hmm. and that was – that kind of broke – the immersion for me. Right, right. Uh, totally. Totally. Whereas the way the rest of the scares are shot is very immersive and really drew me into the movie and had me like, I think right in the zone it wanted me to be in. That Um, thing does come kind of out of nowhere too. Like it's it's kind of confusing. Agreed agreed with you, Russ. The scares are really well executed and uh, I particularly liked the use uh, many times of long continuous uh, Mm -hmm. shots where Mm -hmm. they just, one shot that goes on for, there's actually one shot that goes on for minutes yeah, and uh, the super shallow focus shot. Yeah, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. so it was so really well great. Done. Yeah, so well done. So a lot of great stuff to to like in this film. And uh, I mean, it sounds like uh, Russ for you's mixed bag. Devinder really liked it, and I was probably between the two of you. I mean, I yeah. I enjoyed the film quite a bit as well. I don't know if it was as revelatory for me as the first film, uh, but uh, yeah, still really dug it. Any. Other thoughts before we wrap it up and move on to other stuff? Uh, yeah, if we're avoiding spoilers, I guess there's stuff I don't want to talk about. But, you know, it's uh, – I, I I definitely really like this movie. But it's uh, – I do hope James Wan can figure out, like, ways to push further rather than just refining what's very traditional. Push further um, in what yeah. sense, though, Devendra? Like, I guess, like, to me – and this may be an issue with, like, the screenwriters, too. Like, the movie just feels too neat. By the end of it, like it's wrapped up, it's like, oh, it's it's this one thing. Yeah, it, it we does do this follow thing to very. Solve the thing. It, it yeah. does follow genre tropes right. really closely. I mean, right. if you've watched other horror films, it, it's pretty close. There are some head fakes there, here and mm-hmm. there, but uh, it, it is a very predictable ending. Yeah, and, there, there's yeah. a very specific like bad thing, and then <laughs> they do a thing to stop the bad thing, and then uh, we're maybe good. they do we're, or we're fine. They, maybe yeah. they do or do we're not fine. stop the bad thing. I, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's good, but it's like <laughs> I think of like the feeling of dread of like you know the end of uh, Ringu or even no the Ring actually, where you know they just they they leave the videotape and it goes yeah. on and like yeah. it there is you know you you save your family but everyone else is doomed. Um, there there is like one little title card at the end of the movie that was kind of creepy, but that was it. That was like amidst the like very happy music that the movie mm-hmm. is happily ended. Yeah. One one thing I would like to say is there are two movies that came out this weekend, this movie and Now You See Me Too, which both mm-hmm. kind of hit this weird um, like paradox of belief in that like this movie, as we've talked about, you've, you're, you're given a haunting, which at best is maybe a, a questionable affair. And this is coming from someone who has seen supernatural things and believes in them. Um, but, you know, you've got this movie where there's mm-hmm. a, some sort of engaging the idea of like, oh, is this thing a hoax or is it real? Um, and now you see me too, where they're doing this magic stuff that's very clearly not real, but we're meant yeah. to believe it, or other characters are meant rain. to believe it. Yeah. 
you know, well, freezing the rain is like, that's a pretty simple, like that's a strobing <laughs> optical trick. Yes, and and yes. like that I kind of liked in the way that that's integrated. There's other stuff in that movie where I'm like, uh, okay, this is just like CG and editing. Um, and I would love to see, you know, things that I would love to see in sequels to both of these movies, which are probably both inevitable, is really in, engaging a little more with this idea of what we can believe and what we can't and why it's important and all that sort of thing. Now, that may not be what these movies are. These movies may just not care about that and, and that's fine too. But it's a, like that's an interesting thing to think about and it, it's something that uh, I've been chewing on with, with uh, both of these films after, after seeing them. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like Conjuring 2, and the thing about the film that resonated the most with me is this idea that uh, something's happening to you, uh, or you're suffering from something, and no one else believes you, you know, mm -hmm. and to find someone who believes you, it can be a very potent uh, thing, and I think the movie really brings that to life in a vivid way. So, uh, I was a fan, and uh, yeah, that's our review of Conjuring 2. So uh, thanks for tuning in to the Slash Filmcast. we got an After Dark coming up for you right now. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, Russ Fisher, where can people find more of your work on the Internet this week? Um, I, you know, I announce everything via Twitter. I'm on uh, Twitter as Russ Fisher. Uh, again, there's the Contently site, which is russfisher.contently.com. Um, I'll probably have a couple of features and reviews at the playlist, and then I have uh, a few other things that will be uh, coming up shortly. Cool. Thanks for joining us, Russ, and uh, you'll be sticking around in a few moments. Uh, and this is the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. We're out. Before we get started on this Slash Filmcast After Dark, which is just going to be a bunch of random topics, one of the things that I wanted to mention uh, is follow-ups to last week's episode of the podcast. Uh, two things I wanted to follow up with. Number one, um, that on last week's episode, I mentioned uh, that Din Tai Fung, the Chinese restaurant, is the only Chinese restaurant to have received a Michelin star. That is not true. Uh, <laughs> it, it, is one of, it is one of many. But uh, it's, it's definitely one of the best. Uh, anyway, <laughs> that mistake was so embarrassing that I actually removed it from the – like usually wow. I just – usually wow. I leave in my errors – and uh, and then correct them on the following. Well, uh, following you embarrassed. Uh, I, I feel like you embarrassed the entire culture. No, that's there, true if, for sure. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and if, yourself. If I was white, the mistake would have been unforgivable. <laughs> um, but fortunately, I'm Chinese, so I can make blatantly, egregiously wrong statements about Michelin stars. Uh, anyway, I actually removed that statement from most of the copies of that episode <laughs> that went out. Uh, so I don't even know why I bring it up, but there there were many thousands so of people, people who have already done. The, uh, the the faulty episodes. Those are like special editions. Those are special editions. Back. That's right. They're, they're like limited edition yeah. slash filmcasts. Anyway, another thing I wanted to bring up is uh, on last week's episode, Jeff Kanata asked uh, a question about like how ticket sales are doing this year because we were talking about how sequels are kind of not doing well at the box office this year. And theatlantic.com came out with a post – Entitled, Hollywood has a huge millennial problem. That post came out this past week, uh, and they came out with the following statistic. I'm going to quote from the article here. Perhaps Hollywood's funk is even worse than a sequel slump. In 2016, the film industry is on pace to sell the fewest 
U.S. tickets per person of any year since perhaps before the 1920s, and the fewest total tickets in two decades. This is an extrapolation based on previous year's sales progressions, and a strong summer or fall could boost the final sales figures, but this year might be even weaker than it looks. The sixth and seventh highest grossing films of 2016, Star Wars Episode Seven and The Revenant, were actually released in 2015. Box office analysts are grim. Hollywood is in a creative funk, Jeff Bach, an analyst, told The Hollywood Reporter, end quote. So uh, th- there's your answer to your question. Ticket sales are not doing well. This industry is in trouble. A lot of people have questioned me when I've said that on the Slash Filmcast before. But, uh, you know, those are the stats. And uh, I-, I think, like, every week we are getting a sequel now. And every week, uh, or almost every week, you know, at least one of the films out in the box office is underperforming. So... Perhaps the bloodbath that George Lucas and Steven Spielberg foresaw is upon us. Uh, but speaking of things that are going to upend the entire industry, uh, there is a short film released this week called Sunspring. Uh, and I think you guys have heard of this. This is a short film written by an AI. Uh, and the, the circumstances under which this short film was written are a bit complicated. Uh, but suffice to say, they fed a bunch of scripts into an AI they gave it a few prompts, things they wanted to include in the short film, in the script. And then uh, mm-hmm. the AI wrote the script, and then some uh, humans directed the film. Now, right. uh, we've always been worried that machines will replace man. And, you know, are they going to do well, a better they, job? They, than, are. they are, are. Are they going to do a better job than us at certain things? <laughs> What's going to happen when... Uh, they can do most of the jobs we need, mm-hmm. but of course, there's always going to be some jobs that they can't do. Right. Like humans write, are creative, right? Writing yeah. jokes, you know, sure. writing writing essays, writing poetry. Machines can never do this. Uh, so the idea of a short film written by a machine can be quite terrifying. Like if this was an amazing short film, then it could really be frightening. The implications of what it presents for. Uh, for mankind and, and the creative arts. Uh, so, Devendra, you're the only person in the world that I know that like Chappie. Uh, what did you think? <laughs> what did you think of Sunspring, which, by the way, is available right now on YouTube? You know, did you do you think that uh, human screenwriters have a lot to fear from machines? I, I mean, I don't. I don't think no. Based on this, no, they don't have anything <laughs> to fear yet. But I, what's interesting about it is that you know you're watching this movie because it was written by a machine. You're like, okay, well, what's happening here? And uh, yeah, nonsensical dialogue. That's what it is, and yeah. they're just trying to make sense of like this insanity. Uh, but I, I think that yeah, the the ability to like try to make something cohesive out of that kind of shows the human element of it. Which is uh, kind of interesting. I will, I will tell you, Dave, uh, William Gibson, I know, really liked Chappie. So I, I don't know. I, I, I give that dude some props. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this this movie doesn't prove that, yeah, the robots will write better scripts. But uh, we have seen that the robots are definitely doing a lot of other things, right? They're taking over a lot of manual jobs and a lot of, like, fine uh uh, like uh, building jobs too, like uh, Foxconn, the company that builds uh, most of the iPhones, uh, laid off tens of thousands of workers recently and replaced them all with machines. And that's not like, you know, big, uh, those aren't like big things they're making. That's really fine uh, instruments that they're creating. So that sort of thing is really interesting. And as a, you know, reporter, uh, I, I've seen robots that write out financial stories and technology stories and do Trunk. it okay. Yeah. Trunk. Well, <laughs> some of it's junk. Uh, but some not junk, no, no, tronk, tronk. 
Yes. The, uh... Well, there there is Tronk, yes. <laughs> uh, but I'm talking like even the like a lot of financial journalist sites or financial journalism sites, like uh, they're using um, you know machines to spit out earnings reports, and they often read better than some earnings reports I've read from actual you know human writers, and because they're from the machines and like they're getting all the stats in you know robotically, uh, they're also typically more accurate too. So. Yeah, we we're definitely seeing the start of something happening I, here. I, I want to return to that, but first, let me ask Russ mm-hmm. Fisher: What do you think of Sunspring, this uh, interesting short film? You said something about uh, machines not being able to write jokes, but what this movie reinforces is the fact that humans <laughs> can deliver them. Mm-hmm. Because I I found this short to be really entertaining, and it has entirely everything to do with the cast, because you see the cast very clearly wrestling with fully absurd material, uh, and they often kind of make it work. You yeah. know, it's weird how how much something can sound okay if it's delivered by a competent to very good actor. I don't mean to demean any of the cast here by suggesting they're only competent. They're, they're all quite good. Um, and, you know, being at Slash Film and writing daily news for a long time, I've seen more mm-hmm. proof-of-concept sci-fi shorts or high-concept sci-fi shorts or fan-made films or whatever. And, you know, I'll be nice and not mention any in particular, but they're almost all garbage. Um, and <laughs> they lack that human element you know you can say like oh here's a really great story prompt and that's true but a lot of a lot of short films that you see especially sci-fi short films really lean hard on special effects or on high concept or something like that um and you what they don't have is a touch of humanity to them or a person or a good actor and so you take material that is patently garbage as the 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 script is um, like comically so, but it's still garbage. And uh, and you give it to actors who have an idea of what to do with it, and they make it into something that that is you know watchable for nine minutes and actually kind of interesting. I think the direction is also pretty amazing as well in this uh, short film. I mean, imagine getting a script that's completely incomprehensible and figuring out how to stage it, how to shoot it, how to design the sets and the costumes. Uh, for me, it was a reaffirmation of. Uh, the creativity that can be found in humanity. They took something that is almost meaningless and made it into something that at times could be quite beautiful. Uh, But let me ask you guys, both of you write for a living, right? Uh, Do you feel like robots present an existential threat to your way of life? For sure, yeah. I mean, I used to write more straight uh, financial technology news. I used to have to do a lot of earnings reports. I don't do that as much anymore, thank God. Uh, but I, I would do you know those types of stories, and then I'd see stuff that robots are spitting out, um, and they feel exactly the same. So I either felt like I was turning into a robot, or the robot, the robots were just getting you know to be more human or something. Probably the former. But yeah, it's uh, it's 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 been a problem. How about you, Russ? Do you, do you feel the robot creep on you? I don't feel the robot creep, no. Or I, I guess I should put it this way. I'm not worried about it. I, I think that there's always, uh, always going to be a need for a human element and always room for it. Um, that human element may have to 
distinguish, its, distinguish itself much more significantly to get and keep that job. Who knows? Um, and you know, as perhaps the robots know, will make the humans fight uh, for survival in to some, the death. Yeah, you know, in, in loincloths. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, sure. I, yeah. I, I'm not saying I wouldn't do that. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I've done that job where where. Uh, there's a robotic repetitiveness that sets in and, and you – just to get the work done, you you find yourself kind of going into a very predictable programmed routine because that's the way you can get a high volume taken care of very quickly. Uh, and that – sure, you know, that kind of um, removes a little bit of uh, spark. It, it, it douses, uh, douses a spark. It kills a little spontaneity and that's a big drag. Um, but that's when you maybe go and, you know – if that's not what you want to do, you do something else. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it sounds like the we all thought the film was an interesting curiosity, but uh, not something that we feel like is going to replace the Hollywood machine anytime soon. Well, I didn't say that. I mean, the Hollywood machine <laughs> is clearly run by robots. Yes. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they were run by mindless suits, actually. But anyway, um, <laughs> so... Any other topics we want to discuss? I guess I want to mention a few movies I've seen recently. Sure. I've been finishing up the Seattle International Film Festival, uh, and it finally came to an end after three and a half weeks, which was really intense. Hundreds That's of incredibly films. long. Oh, Hundreds God. of films. Um, and uh, I, I had a great time watching a bunch of movies. I actually spoke on a panel about uh, film critics uh, at the Seattle International Film Festival. I was very honored to speak alongside the film critics for Time Magazine, Hollywood Reporter, Associated Press, IndieWire, and me. Um, so I was outrageously unqualified for that, but uh, still had a good time nonetheless. Uh, so the only movie I just want to mention is a movie called Life Animated, which I mentioned uh, last week. Uh, it's a documentary about Owen Suskind, an autistic child who communicates using Disney films. Like he's watched a ton of Disney films and uses the emotions and lines from those films to make sense of the world and to communicate with his parents and his friends. And it is one of the most powerful documentaries I've ever seen. Uh, Really got to me, really pulled the heartstrings, a lot of tears in the audience, and it was followed by one of the best Q&As I've ever been to. So Life Animated, uh, if you are at all into Disney films, I mean, as someone who... uh, approaches movies in the way that we do like we all here love movies and um for for each of us i think movies have not only shaped uh, our inner life but they have shaped our professional lives as well in many ways mm-hmm. um and obvi- i'm not trying to compare at all like the way i relate to movies with the way owen sus kind of relates with movies but just that for me movies have been a really important part of my life so for this other person uh they were a, a crucial part of his sort of coming of age and his maturation. Uh, and it's just incredibly moving to see it. So life animated, it premiered at Sundance this year and uh, the director is touring around the country with that film. Uh, if you have a chance to see it and you are at all a fan of Disney films uh, or docu like heartwarming documentaries, I think this is a movie for you. So, you guys been watching anything uh, this week? Russ Fisher, what have you seen recently that you want to recommend? Did you check out Warcraft? I did see Warcraft. I saw it about a month ago. Um, I think it's got a lot of problems, <laughs> to, to put it lightly. But I was pretty uh, 
I think the orgs are pretty incredible. Um, and despite there being some big uh, hurdles to cover with the character, I think that Paul Patton's character, Garona, is a really interesting character and one of the more um, kind of persuasive and, and, and potent female characters that we've seen in a tentpole in a while. I think she's kind of hidden in the movie, but she's – uh, she's got by far, I think, the most powerful emotional arc of the movie, and I think that she really embodies a lot of what the film is trying to say uh, in a way that works. It's it's just a, a shame that she mm-hmm. does it in a in a film that doesn't really work. And also, from um, what I've seen of her character, like they they have just like that design of her character is is horrifying. I don't know. Yeah, she like she's got these prosthetic tusks, these little tiny ones, and they they kind of impede her speech, and it's mm-hmm. just uh, it's just a bit awkward, really. Um, I would love to see the character realized in a slightly different way, but I think the way that it's written and some of her performance uh, are really pretty strong. Um, and then on the subject of film festival things, uh, I and since we were just talking about the Conjuring too, um, this past week I saw uh, Lights Out. Oh, the Los nice. Angeles Film Fest, which, uh, as a lot of our listeners will probably know, is is based on a very popular uh, short film that was what like a two or three minute short film, less um, less than three minutes, I think. It was like yeah, 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 and it's uh, so this is the the feature version, and it's still pretty brief. I think it's like seventy five or eighty minutes long, and I really enjoyed it. You know, mm-hmm. I think that um, it's it's completely unpretentious. It's almost even a little bit campy in ways. <laughs> Um, but it, I think it fully delivers on the premise that it offers up when you, you know, the, to, to explain to anyone who doesn't know what it is, basically the concept is that people are haunted by a thing that, uh, is visible and present in the dark and that, that kind of vanishes when light is shown upon it. And that's it's like that's, pitch that's, black without Vin Diesel. Think of it like that. <laughs> No, yeah, it's, actual it's the, darkness. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a haunted house version of Pitch Black, <laughs> and and it's an interesting uh, kind of uh, companion piece to The Conjuring too, because it is a big haunted house movie. Um, but I don't know. It's I I liked it more than I liked The Conjuring too. Oh, and wow. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that Lights Out is a great movie. I'm just gonna <laughs> say that I think it is better at hitting its mark than The Conjuring Two was. Yeah. It's I, a pretty it's, simple concept. It's trying to get yeah perfect. Its its ambitions are more modest. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it's you know you can say oh it's easier for it to be successful which is I don't know that's a shell game I need to play but mm-hmm. I I was really entertained by the movie it really worked for me um, it it doesn't do anything that surprises me but it did everything that I thought it needed to do and it and it did it pretty well um, so it's I, I don't remember the director's name sadly it's the same guy who made the short that it's based on yeah um, and it. it you know, marks a promising uh, feature debut for him as as a guy who can kind of step up and and do a feature. And actually, to bring it even more full circle, he is doing the next Annabelle movie, the next oh, man. Conjuring spinoff sequel. Uh, David uh, Sandberg, I think is his mm. name. Uh, and yeah, it's crazy, Russ Fisher, that you think that uh, Lights Out is a better film or is more enjoyable in some way than Conjuring 2. It's just because David Sandberg, that's his like first movie. The dude yeah. is, uh, what, like 30 years old? He, or he's 35 years old. He's young dude and uh, James Wan, much more seasoned. Uh, and so the idea that Lights Out is, is scarier in some way or better executed, uh, I'm very curious to see it myself. So It's just uh, very focused. You know, it's it gets in and out. It, it's it's, it's uh, 
um, clinical is the wrong word. Surgical is better. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it has one aim, uh, and it, and it gets in and it does that and then it gets out and, um, and it, and it does it very competently. Anything you want to mention, Divindra, that you've been watching recently? Um, I was speaking of like horror movies and thrillers for the summer. I'm looking forward to Don't Breathe later this summer. I've heard it just looks good. Just a great concept. Um, and also, I guess I want to ask you guys a question. Have you seen, um, the AMC theaters or some theaters that are getting these like plush seats that kind of recline with power recliners? Yes. They've been popping up. Uh, it's not really a new thing. They've actually been popping up over the past few years all, all over the country. Uh, but we're just getting some of them here in New York. And I uh, have to tell you guys, like that that is a great experience. I just, I love it. Um, it's there's, magnificent. Yeah, yeah, it's really, really nice. One of those theaters just got uh, basically renovated and they added in these seats right near my office. So it's now like my go-to place to like go. It's the AMC Village 7, I believe. Um, and it's fantastic because, yeah, the seating is great. The reclining is just fan- is good stuff. And they also have less seats, at least in this theater. Uh, they have fewer seats than they do before. So it's kind of a more of an intimate experience, even though the ticket price is the same. Uh, but I, you know, I've been there a couple times over the past few weeks and it's just a great experience, you know, like this is kind of what movie theaters need to do. I think like not the 40 X crap, which I complained about already. And honestly, I think it's even more, uh, it's more comfortable than something like, uh, the Alamo draft house or any of the dine-in theaters. Like I'd rather have a nice comfy seat that I can lay down in for a bit, um, re- you know, than full meal service. And I hope we see more of these things. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I would agree. Those seats are terrific. And uh, there's one house in uh, Century City here in L.A. that I've been to a couple of times. I saw 10 Cloverfield Lane in there and uh, and also saw Hardcore Henry, which was pretty much the only enjoyable part about Hardcore Henry. <laughs> oh, get out of here. Get out of here, Russ. That's not you know it's not a movie for me. And actually, to say it's the only enjoyable part is 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 a lie because there are a couple of things that Charlotte Copley does that are really yes, entertaining. Yes. Yeah, they are. Um, it's film for me and we can leave it at that um you knew i mean come on god both of you guys know me you both know this is not a movie for me right Um, right. but oh those seats are wonderful yeah so if you have one of those amcs around you by all means uh live there yeah yeah do it do it um well let me ask you guys this uh any movie you're looking forward to the most this summer as we're already kind of getting into the summer season um, you mentioned Lights Out. You mentioned – what was that movie, Devendra? Uh, uh, don't Breathe. Don't Breathe. There's this movie called uh, The Shallows that looks kind of interesting, yes, a horror yes, film. Yes, looks good. Uh, it's by the guy who directed Nonstop, Unknown, and Orphan. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, even though I thought Nonstop – like talking about his movies. Even yeah, though even though Nonstop was pretty awful, uh, I thought <laughs> Unknown and Orphan had some really awesome things about them. Yeah. Um, so – uh, that could be interesting. Yeah, so movie you're most looking forward to seeing? I, I guess the one that, for me, the one that I'm most interested in, which I think I'm seeing in the next week or two, mm-hmm. is Swiss Army Man, the uh, Daniel Radcliffe yeah. farting corpse Paul Dano movie. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that just looks like such an interesting and bold, unique concept. Great uh, summer movie. And I've heard good things about it. So I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to checking that out. Russ Fisher, anything you're really itching to see? Yeah, let's see. Um, I've seen Swiss Army Man. I saw it at Sundance. Um, Am I right to be excited about it? It's a very striking movie. Um, <laughs> I I didn't love it. I was I think in the minority 
I, it seemed like everybody else liked that movie a lot more than I did. Um, I certainly what what I can say is that they do not they do not flinch when it comes to like really diving into that concept. Um, so the, the movie goes all out and, and both main actors, both Paul Dano and Dana Radcliffe do some terrific stuff in there. So even not having loved it, I would say it's worth seeing for them because you're not going to see two major actors go into like do a story like that anywhere else anytime soon. Um, so that's a big deal. I'm really curious to see Pete's dragon, you know, um, I think the idea of uh, David Lowry bouncing from like really serious art films to mm-hmm. this kind of like family friendly Disney remake with like kind of a dog looking dragon and Robert Redford. Uh, <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm super into that idea and I'm, I'm really hoping that works. Uh, you know, the times I've talked to David, he's a really terrific guy and he's smart and has some really good ideas of his own. And, uh, they showed footage from that film here in LA a week or so ago, and I didn't go, um, so I, I can't even I can't even spoil anything about that. But uh, I know there's a new trailer tomorrow, I think, for the movie. Yeah, I hope that's good. I, it'd be really nice if if that one works. Devinder Hardwar, close us out. Uh, let me let me think. What are you here. looking forward I, uh, to? Man? I'm actually really looking forward to seeing the Hunt for the Wilder People. That's the, really good. Uh, yeah, it looks the Taika Waititi movie the. Yeah, it looks yeah. like a uh, lot of fun. Uh, yeah. we, we saw a bunch of trailers for that at uh, the Seattle International Film Festival, and yeah, mm-hmm. it does look like it will be awesome. Oh, guys, Neon yes. Demon. Have you seen Neon Demon yet? I'm I've looking s- forward to it. I've heard, yeah, yeah, the mixed things. I've seen it. Yeah, I like it. It's um again on the on the movies that are or are not for Russ Fisher uh, question. It's very mm-hmm. much a movie for me. Um, it's quiet. It's not. I don't think it's the movie that a lot of people expect it to be. Um, it's very quiet. It's very. Um, yeah, I don't. Uh, okay. Okay. Here, here are my questions. Here are my questions. Is it? Shoot. Is yeah. it visually beautiful? Because of course. That's, oh my yeah, gosh. Sure. Yeah. Like it really is. prerequisite for a Nicholas Winding Refn film is it looks amazing, and uh, is it more entertaining than Only God Forgives? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think Only God Forgives is really entertaining. Oh. It's not like <laughs> it's. I'll tell Me too. You, you know, yeah. Y- y- you know what? Um, this movie has Keanu Reeves as a total douchebag, um, and so that right there is enough. Like he's super entertaining. Um, it's a slow, quiet movie. Like this is. It's you know. It, it, it's it's very deliberate. Um, did you ever see Femme Fatale, the the Brian De Palma movie? Uh, no, I didn't. Which is kind of like Femme Fatale is kind of like Brian De Palma, like just going all in and basically turning like a fashion shoot into a thriller movie, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what the Neon Demon is like. Um, it's it's gorgeous, it's absolutely beautiful, and it and it's all about imagery, but it's got a couple of good performances. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to give too much away. I like the movie. <laughs> I, I would recommend it. Yeah. Um, cool. and I, but yeah. it's not as action packed as Drive, is my guess. Is drive action packed? It's so it's packed to the gills of action. It no, has I'm a just, bit of action. I'm just joking. Like, it has like yeah. three action scenes. But we like they're so good. We like we just focus on that. Yeah, yeah. It, it's yeah. not action packed in the way that drive is. It has a couple of really unforgettable bits in it. However, 
right. uh, it has it has a couple of things that are like big audience reaction mm-hmm. moments. No, knowing uh, Refin, I feel like he's just going to actively never make anything like Drive again. Like just like fuck you guys who want this me to make this thing. Like I'm going to keep doing. Well, I think that I, I've read a few features with him. I saw that uh, my life with Nicholas Winding Refn film, mm-hmm. the, the kind of behind the scenes DVD extra is esque uh, film, and. I, I don't think he thought he was departing from Drive when he made Only God Forgives. Right, you know, right. I thought he thought he was just doing what he liked to do. And I, mm-hmm. I don't think he thought, oh, I'm making Drive for the masses, and then I'm making one for myself. I thought he just right, right, right. he thought he was just continuing to do what he was doing. And I guess for me, it just felt like a much different kind of film. Yep. Um, so I, I think maybe the way to look at it is that is that not that only God forgives was the aberration, but the drive was. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. I don't. Well, I don't, that being said, dude, the, pusher, the pusher films are they they they're are not exactly largely accessible. Con- they're not, I don't know. I think they're largely conventional narratives compared to no, sure, sure, sure. Only but in God terms forgives. of like, hey, general audiences, you're going to totally dig these, you know, these weird, tiny, dirty, yeah, uh, German. You know, crime da- films. Danish, like, I think, yeah. is Danish is, crime yeah. films. Danish, yeah. yeah, but still, like, it, those are a hard sell. Like everything, like even uh, what was the uh, the the like uh, Viking movie? What was that what was that called? Valhalla Rising. Valhalla Rising. I love Valhalla Rising. That movie's a hard sell. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. 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 That's now, what he does. Know. He yeah, that's his he whole. Cha- thing. He's challenging. He's a challenging mm-hmm. filmmaker. So I, I think like yeah, Drive is probably the least challenging thing he's done. Even though it's deeper than I think a lot of. Uh, Maybe people have noticed at first glance. I should uh, also but, mention uh, mm-hmm. b- before we go, and on a completely different note, is uh, mm-hmm. Star Trek Beyond. Yes, um, yeah. which uh, you know, I, I, they they did a, a big press thing in LA a couple of weeks ago, which I attended, and they showed a couple of scenes beyond the trailers, and I think both of the scenes that they showed were better by far than anything in uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, which is an admittedly so, yeah. minor bar to clear. Like it's a really <laughs> low hurdle. Um, but no, there's those bits that they showed really made me curious to see the film because they like, there's just in those couple of scenes, mm-hmm. there's some cool character stuff. Um, and like one of those scenes had a conversation that I've, I don't think I've ever seen in Star Trek. And, and it's, uh, and it's just like, Wow, how, why have I not really seen this before? Mm-hmm. And uh, but it's kind of a character thing more than anything else. So I, maybe I dare not. Big... Ho- I dare not hope, Russ Fisher. I dare not yeah. hope. I mean, I, I'm, I mean I, Justin Lin. I feel, I feel like we can we can hope a little, and not not you know, it's not the any of the writers that were involved in Into Darkness. So yeah, uh, all right. Yeah. Uh, I'm, it, lo- I'm looking safer. forward to it. I'm looking forward to it. Have but... you seen the trailer for that, Dave? I've seen the first trailer. Haven't okay. seen because yeah, there, there are some glimpses of imagery we've seen in those trailers. Like there's just one shot of uh, of the Enterprise in hyperspace, which I think is yeah, gorgeous. pretty beautiful. Just all like right. amazing. So right. there, there's that. There's Born coming. What do you guys think of Nerve? Have you heard about this? Nope. This is the movie by the Catfish guys. And it's oh, sort yeah. of like it's about like an online game that, you know, it's played in real life. It's sort of like an online reality game in a way, like people have to do these things to win money uh, and it turns really dark. Uh, the trailer looks really silly, but I am really intrigued by the concept and the fact that it's, you know, Shulman introduced doing it. And it's Lionsgate, like it's getting yeah. kind of a yeah. legit release. It's getting a lot like, of trailers, like I'm seeing it all over the place. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, so I, I think you dig it, Dave. All right. it's, yeah, it's Dave Franco and Emma Roberts, which is yes. like, yeah. Yeah. Huh. yeah, I haven't seen the trailers, but I, I, I know about it just based on the, you know, the, the basic facts of it. 
Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, yeah, great. Looks like it could be fun or a huge mess. I don't know, but I, I'd watch it. Yeah. Well, let's recap. Uh, Nerve, Star yes. Trek Beyond, uh, Lights Out, Swiss Jason Army Born, Man, of course, Jason too. Bourne, yeah. uh, and I feel like I'm missing a couple. Hunt for the Wilder People. Hunt for the Wilder People. Wilder people. Yeah. Yep. Um, so those are some of the movies we're looking forward to. Wow, we listed a bunch of non-blockbusters there other than Star Trek Beyond. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, a and, lot of... And, uh, like Wilder People is really is really worth seeing. Wilder People's like is a is a terrific little movie. Can't wait. Yeah, it's very funny. It's very and like everybody in it is great. It's got some kind of like neat some just good surprises that are woven into it. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Cool. And uh, Neon Demon, that was another one we listed as yes. well. So uh, we will be probably talking about a lot of those on uh, what we've been watching um, throughout the summer. And you can come back to the Slash Filmcast and decide whether or not we were right to look forward to those films. So I think that's going to do it for us today. Thanks for listening to the Slash Filmcast After Dark, and we'll see you guys next week. So... Uh... What are you doing? I don't want to be honest with you. You don't have to be a doctor. I'm not sure. I don't know what you're talking about. I want to see you too. What do you mean? I'm sure you wouldn't even touch me. I don't know what you're talking about. The principle is completely constructed of the same time. (laughs) It's all about you to be true. You didn't even watch the movie with the rest of the base. I don't know. I don't care. I know. It's a consequence. Whatever you need to know about the presence of the story, I'm a little bit of a boy on the floor. All right, here's the magic of the internet. Uh, This is David Chen again, and uh, we were just talking about Sunspring on the Slash Filmcast After Dark. Uh, I had told everyone to actually watch it, and we're going to discuss it. And I had tweeted out earlier in the evening that we were going to be discussing it on the Slash Filmcast. Right now... It's 10.45 p.m. Pacific time, and so it's a little bit late, and I'm quite a bit loopy, so apologies if I'm not as coherent as usual. But uh, essentially what has happened is uh, the directors uh, or creators, both of Sunspring, saw the Twitter post and uh, tuned into the live chat and then offered to talk about it with me here, right now, live, uh, on, on the air. So... Oscar Sharp and Ross Goodwin, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you guys and doing this evening? You, you, have a third, you have a third person, well, sort of a person here. You have Benjamin, um, who uh, wrote the screenplay, who is, uh, who is sitting with us as well here. Oh. I say sitting. He's on Ross's, uh, Ross's screen right now. I see. Uh, so Benjamin, have, the AI. Yes, that's right. If you have any questions for him, he can, he can respond to those. Can he really respond? Or can, yes. or, yeah, yeah, I'm absolutely. Any, like, anything you want to ask it. Like Watson, he can respond? Well, like a really shitty, weird version of Watts. <laughs> <laughs> I see. Uh, okay, so uh, we, you know, on our uh, live broadcast, and which you know people just heard on this episode, we complimented uh, the short film Sunspring on how amazingly it was uh, put together. You know, the, the actors gave it their all, and the direction rendered what was to my ear, an incomprehensible script into something that at, at times could be quite beautiful. Uh, so hopefully you did not take that as a backhanded compliment. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it was something that we all really admired a lot and thought was very interesting. Uh, can you tell us how this came about? 
Uh, how should we how should we attack this? Um, should, I, should I hit it? Yeah, why don't you go ahead? Okay, so so um, we we met at uh, at NYU um, in the Tisch School of the Arts, uh, where I was in the graduate film program and Ross was in the the ITP program, which is a it's like art school for engineers, kind of. And and so I I get there to do film, but um, I've always had this sort of uh, background interest. Many many years ago, I tried to get a. Uh, a spreadsheet and a dice to create a, a, a drama, a, a play of um, people just acting things out. Um, but I certainly couldn't do anything like dialogue or anything that complicated. And, and also I couldn't do any kind of programming. And then there I am on this amazing floor of all these technologists doing amazing things. And I meet Ross and he at the time uh, is creating generative prose. Um, it was short stories, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was just really fascinated with uh, generating uh, creative work and uh, really as a way to augment other creative processes um, you know and, and just the idea of generative text um, fascinated me from the beginning I, I, I originally was a, uh, a, a, a traditional writer I guess uh, and then I learned to code and um, sorry Oscar's just stepped out of the room for a second years back um, but yeah uh, that essentially we met in this class called surveillance documentary where we were both working on uh, programming programmable surveillance cameras to make to make films and um, or experimental films and we both expressed a mutual interest in producing some sort of generative screenplay and, and trying to film it and, and you know uh, at the time I was working with these algorithms that were more procedural uh, and 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 didn't have as much flexibility in the output they could produce. You might um, have to say what procedural means. Oh yeah, of course. Um, so procedural meaning, you know, uh, in a traditional algorithm, it's like step one, uh, you know, find all the uh, words that start with the letter A. Step two, put them all in a row. You know, it, it's it's just you know simple instructions that 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 go in a prescribed order and are the same every time. So I was trying that sort of approach and not getting too far. Um, you know, template systems, they're called, and, and things like that. Um, and then I discovered some machine learning tools, um, uh, in, in particular this long short-term memory neural network that can produce really sort of bizarre prose uh, uh, from, from any given corpus. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, 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 we, we decided to try it on a screenplay about a year later. So. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we sort of, having investigated it for a while, we got a bit of funding from NYU and we tried to make a project and we sort of didn't get all that far. And, and this was before Ross had discovered these, these other methods. And, um, and we'd somewhat gone our separate ways, very much stayed in touch. And, um, and then I was building up to, it was, it was just before my birthday and every year around, around about my birthday, there's this, 48-hour film challenge that they run in London at the Sci-Fi London Film Festival that I do um, where you have 48 hours to write and uh, and shoot and cut a movie and submit it. Um, it's actually uh, the, the contest that gave the world Gareth Edwards, um, who made, went on to make uh, Godzilla and, and is now making the next Star Wars, um, uh, because that was, that was the, the, the contest where he was discovered um, before he made Monsters. And um, anyway, I uh, I was sort of gearing up to do it. And it happened that that week, just as I was gearing up, Ross sent me a poem that his computer had written. Do you have that poem to hand? It doesn't probably. Doesn't. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you want to hear it. But it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it and the point was that he wanted me to read this as, in a, as a recording because um, I used to do these voiceovers. And, and I read this thing and I realized that it's it's moving. Like I'm experiencing actual human emotions while I'm reading this thing. And... That's never happened to me before. I've never seen a piece of generative prose that I found to be moving and humane in any way. And it was in part, it was strange, but it was moving. And I thought, wow, like an actor given 
dialogue that had anything of this quality would definitely be able to bring emotion to it. Um, so it had moved beyond that stage of being just sort of nonsense. A lot of people are saying this film is like, oh, it's, it's just nonsense. It isn't just nonsense. Just nonsense looks very different to this. This has gone well beyond nonsense into, yes, it's, it's hard to grasp and it's strange and hard to listen to, but it's not nearly as, as, as nonsensical as nonsense is. Um, and, and, and right, it fact- is not gibberish. Right? Precisely. The, the, the sentences, that- there are complete sentences and uh, they could conceivably be about something. Precisely. Complete sentences. Well, any, any, like, as people have noticed, like, any like five or ten second window of the film could be in any movie pretty much. It, <laughs> right. It's just when you move outside that window. Yes. So because so, cause as yet, it seems that Benjamin hasn't been able to uh, spread sensicality beyond, beyond those bounds. But there is sensicality in each moment, as it were. And for an actor, that's what they need to be able to start bringing reality and, and, and um, emotional momentum to it. So I'm like, wow, I can, I can get some actors involved in this. Um, and so I said, Ross, can we, I love this poem. Can we do screenplays the same way? And he went, don't see why not. And I said, right, sci-fi theme. And he started pumping sci-fi screenplays into into um, Jetson, as he was called at the time, before he renamed himself Benjamin. We can get into that. Um, and um, and yeah, out out came this this uh, device that could generate screenplays. Fascinating. And so uh, I, I feel like we actually should probably schedule a, a separate conversation to do- dive more into this, sure. uh, just because there's so much that we could talk about based on what you just said moments ago. But I guess for now, I want to ask you uh, in the waning hours of Monday evening, uh, you know, when did you release this film? It's Monday, June 13th. When was this short film released? Sunspring. Thursday. It dropped on Thursday on Ars Technica. Um, So I guess we've done, yeah, it's been what, four days, five days. Gotcha. And uh, where are you right now in the world as you're recording this? Uh, We're in New York city. So it's nearly, so it is almost 2 a.m. And you guys are hanging out and for some reason conducting a Twitter search for Sunspring uh, at all times and, so, and calling in impromptu to slash filmcast. So I guess yeah. um, uh, it, it's something that you're still like really following intently at this moment in time. Right? It's, it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, we, I think so far we counted just now 47 blogs have written significant articles about this. It's been we've been on Australian national radio. We're going to be on Canadian national radio tomorrow. I think we and American national radio later nice. this week. Oh, yeah. oh, that's NPR, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, America, jeez, God. Anyway, um, but you, well, you, this you, is a good warm up for your NPR appearance. <laughs> thank you. But it's, it was it was this this sort of feeling that. I did. I, I really wanted it to start a conversation, and, and a lot of those conversations are, are, you know, Neil Gaiman going, "Oh well, this isn't very good." <laughs> um, but it's the level to which it's much better than it really has any right to be is what's fascinating on the first level. And then you can go beyond that, and you can say, you know, this is a this is a mirror for culture. We've poured thousands of, of screenplays from a particular genre in. And then when we generate screenplays, they come out with particular tropes again and again and again. People saying, I don't know what's going on. Do you know what's going on? I don't know. I don't understand this. I don't understand you. What does that tell us about sci-fi? It tells us that people in sci-fi don't know what the hell's going on a lot of the time. And that makes perfect sense. But, you know, we've, we've actually, we've got, um, Benjamin is now writing synopses uh, for, for films. He's writing sort of paragraph long synopses. Maybe Russ will pull one up. And, um, sure. And those those have been incredibly revealing. We if we I, we generated thirty of them yesterday, and we had a had a look over them. And of those thirty, three quarters of them talk about fathers 
and one quarter of them talk about mothers. Um, man is by far and away the most frequent word in all of these film synopses, um, out, outstripping woman four to one. Right? And that's all of the films that we could dig up, like tens of thousands of them um, from the sort of corpus that is Hollywood. So I don't know. It's, it's just it tells us I think it tells us a lot about what it is we're doing. And for well, me, when you, when, you look, when you look at this uh, experiment and do you think to yourself, oh, my gosh. This is a massive success. I achieved everything I set out to achieve. Or do you feel like you are 5%, 3%, 20% of the way to what you're trying to accomplish with we, Film we, we We have begun the conversation. We have begun the conversation. And, 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 and your interest to me is, is yet more evidence of that. And that I'm, I'm delighted about. And I, I hope that the conversation can evolve in exactly this way of like, it, what can this show us about what we're doing in cinema? I mean, I'm, I'm a you know, a, a fiction filmmaker generally. I'm writing my first feature for Toby Maguire at the moment. I, I, and that's a straightforward bit of sci-fi, I suppose, except, I don't know, I just, I've always been interested in asking the question, like, what, what, what are the systems that we're stuck in that we don't realize we're stuck in? And, and should we break them? Why are we stuck in them? Where, how can we break them? You know, and th- this to me is a, is a good starting point for that sort of thinking. All right. Well, uh, I think you guys have certainly started a conversation, and uh, it is a fascinating one, and, and it does, uh, as I pointed out on the podcast, fill many of us with existential dread as to whether machines will replace everything about us, including our creative impulses. But uh, uh, what is true abundantly in Sunspring is that uh, machines still need humans to bring mm-hmm. these stories to life in a really compelling yeah. way. Yeah, and that'll be, and that'll be true, you know, Forever, I think, because even machines that aid in creative processes, they need creative designers, they need creative engineers, they need creative operators. Um, you know, I, I think that a lot of this work is about how can we augment our creativity, not how can we replace it, mm-hmm. um, to be honest. Um, I, I think the replacement uh, part, you know, comes from the sort of paranoia we have that we're going to become obsolete. But that idea, I think, comes from a lot of fiction that we've absorbed about what happens when we get to the level of intensely real human AI level AI. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of that fiction is very paranoid because it, it makes for a better story. But I think the reality of it is, is a lot more down to earth and a lot more about how can these machines help us do what we're already doing better. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm yeah. going to quote from two works of fiction for you right now. Uh, one of them is the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing <laughs> the world he didn't exist. So to that, to that extent, uh, the machines have already worked their magic on you, sir, and uh, they are coming for us, and you don't even fear them. So that's the big problem right there, I, number one. I don't, don't fear them at all. Um, number, number two, uh, to quote from another more recent script, one day the AIs will look back on us the same way we look at fossil skeletons from the plains of Africa, an upright ape living in dust with crude language and tools, all set for extinction. That's from uh, Ex Machina, isn't it? It is from Ex Machina. It's Alex Garland's amazing script. And, you know, on a long enough timeline, I think that's probably the case. So I am not as sanguine as you are about humanity's chances. But, uh, you know, that could take uh, hundreds, if not thousands of years. We hope. We hope. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, if it's any consolation, you guys have uh, made the first step to take us there. So. <laughs> well, that's you know I, we we do apologize for for, for triggering the apocalypse. Yeah, um, I mean you should feel bad. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's I, I I think the apocalypse 
if nothing else, is going to be full of some really funny short films. So I, that's, I think that's fine. And to quote from another, uh, uh, yeah, to okay. quote from another one. Go ahead. Yeah, the the you know there there is no big apocalypse. There's just a bunch of little ones. I don't even remember where that came from. And oh. and and to, and to quote one more fantastic and probably I, in my opinion the greatest of all fictional AIs. If I make an if I might make an observation, I did say I'm going to have to think about it. And in the meantime, the rest of you are going to clean up on the pundit circuit. <laughs> <laughs> what is that movie from? That's 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 Deep Thought in uh, in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Oh, it's, gotcha, so gotcha. People terrified that he's going to replace them uh, are going to are going to are going to have a great time while he's having a good think. I thought you guys were going to quote from Pacific Rim where he says, uh, "Today we're canceling the apocalypse." But anyway, <laughs> um, uh, I, I kid with you guys, uh, but I do think that what you have accomplished is uh, quite an achievement, you know, and. and uh, I wish I could talk more with you about uh, the actual filmmaking and the stuff that went into uh, making the movie and like all the decisions that you must have had to make. Uh, so maybe we can do that at a separate time. I'd love to uh, do that. But it is quite late, and I have another 90 minutes of work to do before going to bed, which I know is, is not late for you guys, but uh, since you guys are 2 a.m. over there already. But uh, uh, <laughs> this is a very impromptu interview, so I really appreciate your time and yep. joining me today uh, on this Slash Filmcast After Dark. Uh, and where can people find your short film and more of your work, guys? Uh, Oscar, why don't you start? Well, so if they, if they just Google Sunspring short film right now, they'll find it on, um, on YouTube. It's also on Ars Technica. Uh, my website is thereforefilms.com. And how uh, about you, uh, Ross? My website is just rossgoodwin.com. Uh, there you can find links to my essays about this research. And um, uh, we also have a website, benjamin.wtf, where you can sign up for an email list to get updates about our future collaborations. 